Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. This is the good stuff. Oh, yeah. It's the Laugh Podcast. Over there is Mr. F- uh, Two Frames Bull. Howdy. How are you, sir? Doing well. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm excited. This is the first movie of the year we get to review that I think we've both been really excited about going into it. Yeah, I've been wanting to see this movie for a long time. We've been teasing it out there for about three or four weeks. came out March 18th. And uh, I think based on our reception of this movie director's last three movies, we uh, had some pretty high expectations for Midnight Special. Police issued an Amber Alert for an eight-year-old boy. It's time, you ready? Yeah. Okay. What do you know about Alton Meyer? I wouldn't know where to start. You would have fits. Things would break. It was like a feeling. Kind of feeling. We need to know where he is. You all have no clue what you're dealing with, do Thinks you're their safe. Dad, it's okay. I don't know how much of this movie we want to talk about uh, in terms of plot. Mm, we talked about bits and parts of it. Like, do we want to reveal who the character is? That's. I have uh, an IMDb plot summary that gives away... Gives away a little bit. The relationships. Yeah, I don't think that that's too bad. Really? Yeah. It's in the marketing, too, I think. Yeah. So So the IMDb uh, plot summary says that the government and a group of religious extremists pursue a man, played by Michael Shannon and his son, Jaden Le- uh, Lieberer, a young boy who possesses special powers. Pretty brief description, and that seems to be like the... High concept, um, I don't know, hook for the movie. Kind of starts there. Most of Jeff Nichols' films can be described in a sentence or two. Really? Sure. Uh, shotgun stories, two families engage in a feud involving shotguns. <laughs> I guess, Well, I guess maybe at the, on the surface level. Well, how would you describe Mud? Two boys discover a homeless man <laughs> and okay. help him build his boat. Or fix All right. a boat. Yeah. Yeah, okay. No, I don't think there's any boat fixing going on. I mean, that gets fixed, does it? I, I don't know. I don't want to spoil that movie either. But then his uh, third movie was Take Shelter. A modern day parable of Noah. All right, that's not very descriptive. All right. Uh, man has visions of an apocalypse coming and builds a shelter for his family Ooh, to survive the apocalypse. Blade. 
Yeah. yeah, not too far removed. So yeah, his his movies I think are fairly simple to grasp the motivating factors for characters. Would that be better? That's why I feel like the plot descriptions can be short because you can get to the conflict pretty quickly. I think yeah, I think you can pick up his movies and recognize them as onions. <laughs> but then when you start peeling away the layers, you see there's a lot more depth. A lot more stink coming on. So um of the four movies that we mentioned, oh, maybe we should talk a little bit about this movie. Michael Shannon stars as Roy. Joel Edgerton is the character of Lucas. And he is um at the beginning of the movie with Jason Lieberer, the kid who's played his name is Alton. I think he was in Saint Vincent, the TV or uh the movie Saint Vincent, yeah. With um Bill Murray from last year, a couple of years ago. They are on the run. There's a couple of things that happen in the early start of that movie or the beginning of that movie between those three characters uh, that pull me right in. I was sucked into the movie. I was very satisfied. I was like, wow, this is all before the titles, the title card comes out. And I was thinking, wow, man, the rest of the movies like this, I'm going to be very happy. But the rest of the movie for me, yeah, probably wasn't as exciting as the opening five and a half minutes. Sure. I mean, I, I can agree with that. And this is probably the weakest of Jeff Nichols for films. Yeah. You sort of spoiled but, the question I was going to ask yeah, you, but that's but okay. I still think it's a really good film. I still like Jeff Nichols. Whenever he's going to come out with a new film, I'm going to be interested. Uh, later this year, he's got another film coming out loving that comes out November 4th. Mm-hmm. Also sees Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton again. Mm-hmm. In a movie with him, so I mean, I'm very excited. You know about what it's that. about, right? Um, it's uh, the famous uh, court case interracial and, marriage yeah. in Virginia that went to court. Yeah, right the guys right. got Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. So, so I, I'm excited for that. I like this movie. I think this movie is grander in its reach than any of the other Jeff Nichols films. And Nichols has a very minimalist storytelling style, which I think we're going to discuss more in depth as the show goes on. And what's interesting is he's approaching a genre that so often is overfill, uh, overfilled with uh, exposition. It's brimming with it. I mean, think oh, of... Oh, you mean a lot of movies like Inception or... Oh, yeah. Sci-fi movies where they it, over-explain it, every single oh, yeah, detail. And, uh, I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I like him in Inception. But all that character does is right. explain the mechanics of the universe they're in. Right. Star Wars has to start off with a text crawl to explain all of these details to you. <laughs> right. Midnight Special just says, you're in the middle of this story. We're dropping you in the middle. You've got to pay attention to every little bit of dialogue to understand what's already happened and why things continue to happen. Yeah, so as as a work in genre, his, I guess uh, you could say that Nichols' um, respect for his audience transcends that of other of other uh, sci-fi movies. Even guys that work in sci-fi a lot, like Spielberg, which this movie owes a lot to Spielberg. Mm-hmm. This seems to have a lot more open gaps and places for ambiguity than Spielberg's willing to work with. Um, more so, even than what was it? J.J. Uh, Abrams. What was the movie with um, where the kids Super Eight? Mm-hmm movie has a little bit in common with Super 8 in terms of its tone, although this seems to be a lot darker. And this still se- seems like an indie film. It has kind of that panache to yeah, it. Yeah, I think you were surprised when I just told you the budget was $18 million. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's large. I think that, for a Jeff Nichols film, it's large. 
And it still feels like he was able to keep creative control over it and keep this from being interfered with yeah. too much from the studios. Well, and then the studios have done a bonehead job of releasing it or even marketing it because although it is sci-fi, mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't think that that's the movie's strength at all. It's more like, again, a hook or a, or a way of bringing you into a story that has bigger themes and the larger themes are more interesting themes mm-hmm. of like loyalty and uh it, motivation um sacrifice those those concepts are uh dealt with in this movie like Nichols deals with them in, the, in his other movies in a fairly decent way i mean they're presented through these characters and their interactions in an intriguing way i'm not sure of the payoff though at the very end and I'm not sure, again, if the marketing is, is doing it justice. Well, it's a hard film to market. It's science fiction, but it's not about the science fiction. It's about characters' relationships, and it's about the quiet moments. Mm-hmm. Nichols loves to put the camera on an actor's face as you can see them thinking and trying to decide what to do. You know, what's the correct motivation? And it's a chase film that's very slow-paced. Right. There's actually very little chasing in this film. There, you know, there's not you, that grand payoff. This you isn't don't see be like much the of the born identity or something. <laughs> right. We can talk so about some of those <laughs> sequences a little bit later because I don't even like to spoil the visuals. I think it's important to note though that they're they're on a they're running away from something, but I think they're it's more important for the character of uh Roy that they're running towards something. Mm-hmm. And um this is one of the places where the movie stumbles for me because I'm not really sure if they if they fully explain w- why that's so important. And it, c- it conflicts with itself in terms of uh, what those motivations are. The movie is set up one way and then it becomes like a, a chase, like you say, a chase thing. They're, they're trying to avoid the government, but then they're, they're, I don't think that they're even aware of some of these other forces that are after them. You don't think they know the cult is after them? I think that they know the cult would be after them, but I don't think they feel that on their tail. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a it's not a presence, a looming presence behind them, and so some of those sequences are sort of mishandled for me. I mean, I was uh, I'm kind of annoyed at times with the movie. I was expecting it to be a little bit tighter, I suppose. I think it's different. I think. Uh, Nichols is also growing as a director and he's only 37. He's been making films for eight years. I wouldn't be surprised if he's had a child of his own since his last film. Huh? Um, Because this is definitely more of a story of a father and son. And we really haven't seen that in his other films nearly as much that relationship gain explored. Um, Well, it's more like the contrast between a, what you know, like what should be a good relationship between a father and a son mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily exist. So there is, no, you're right. There's no real closeness, or there's a, like the surrogate in mud of a father, but there is no. Uh, well, I suppose in a sense, take shelter. He's trying to. He's trying to protect, protect his, his family. family. But to me, that almost seems more like the guy's gotten married, and now he feels that protective role. I mean, to Are me, you- I, I feel like you can see him growing as a filmmaker Uh, Spielberg has often talked about that that the films he made early in his career he couldn't make later on like Close Encounters of the Third Kind Mm -hmm. am I allowed to spoil that since it's from the 70s 
Well, do you have to spoil it to say Yeah, that to make a... the point. Because Spielberg talked about this openly in interviews. And if Spielberg's willing to talk about it, why can't I? I mean, why not keep the streak alive? All right. <laughs> Go ahead and He said he made that movie when he was single and didn't have a family. So he was able to send his main character off with the aliens at the end of the film and right. have him abandon his family. He said now that he has a family, he could never have made that directorial decision. Yeah, I wonder why someone didn't like snap him up and say, hey, uh, Spiely, I'm not sure if you're making the right choice here. I don't think that this guy would do this. I wonder why Dreyfus didn't say that. I don't know, but... Uh, it didn't make any sense at the time, and that's the movie, as a result, suffers. Yeah, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, very happy-go-lucky film. He gets a divorce right before he does Temple of Doom, so did George Lucas, and that movie is dark and disturbing. Are you suggesting, then, that this... But uh, if you're suggesting that he's going to improve as a filmmaker over time with more experience and more personal life experiences might change the choices he makes, um, then I understand that point of view. However when he sets the bar so high with his first three movies and they seem to get, I mean, I was trying to figure out which movies of those three I like more. And it's kind of hard for me to choose between them. I can say that I like this one considerably less like, um, take shelter is the only movie that I have on my Kindle. <laughs> and I, I, I watch it when I go on trips. Um, and you saw shotgun stories long before I did and, uh, told me about it. And I, I get, was able to watch that that might be my favorite one that's the tightest story and it's his first one i think uh mud rambles a little bit some of the acting is is not as tight as um what he's able to accomplish with with even this movie i think although i mean it seems like mud is a lot broader than this not as withdrawn uh or uh synced in i suppose it's the way i'm trying to think of it so anyway my point is he sets the bar pretty high with his earlier, his three earlier movies. This movie, eh, it seems like a stumble and a fumble. It's a little bit of a stumble, but it reminds me of Quentin Tarantino. We reviewed Hateful Eight earlier on the show a couple months ago, and we both said, is this his best work? No, but it's still Tarantino. It's still going to be better than a lot of other things. I, I think Midnight Special does a lot of interesting things in the science fiction genre, and even though it's treading on well-traveled ground, you know, uh, special powers, government chasing after you, all that sort of stuff. It still feels unique. It still feels like an original voice is telling a story. Uh, okay. I, I didn't get that as much. All right. the, the, it was the a lack, lack of originality in some of the visuals and some of the motivations. Well, I mean, some of it is homage. Yeah, but if you're not better than the things you're, you're homaging, then what's the point? I, I think, I, I, I don't know. I think when you have this level of talent that he clearly has, I think it's fair to call it out as a misstep. I mean, I can have a tepid recommendation for the movie and, and I'll give it what it's, what it's worth. I mean, mm -hmm. the acting performances are good. Again, the themes and some of the writing is good, but the, and the general feel of the movie was decent, but I was, it's just a bit of a, a letdown. I was a little bit underwhelmed. That's fine. Um, I was reading reviews on this before the show, and I read Leah Pastich's review from the Herald Sun in Australia. Okay. And she wrote, While Nichols' much-anticipated new work, uh, Midnight Special, will not be the film to break him through to wider audience, there are enough unique qualities in play to suggest his time is drawing tantalizingly near. 
And I do think that's true. I think this is a guy, maybe his next film, it might be the film after that. That's what really brings him into wide and well-known do you, realms. Maybe he's not interested in that, though. I'm, and I'm not sure if he's looking... Like, the sci-fi part of it was just another way of telling his story. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if he's interested in working in that genre again. And it seems like sci-fi superhero is the kind of thing to bring you to a wider audience whereas he's just going to sort of like slowly be trudging along like coen brothers are just they're doing their thing for 18 movies or whatever and it's pretty much their thing i mean there might be variances here and there and they do work in different genres Mm -hmm. but you know they're working with a small cadre of actors like he does uh michael shannon's been in every one of his movies and i can see him you know using this ensemble piece to work or these this ensemble group to work out a variety of themes i don't know if he's really trying to get to a wider audience i I think want to do better movies i think he's doing character studies in all of his movies i do think there's a lot of truth to these stories i mean they feel genuine they feel like they could happen i mean with the exception of well the fantastical elements yeah, yeah in this but i mean all of his films they do have a sense of realism mm-hmm. to it. So I feel at some point he's going to hit a nerve in the general population and one of his movies will do well and crack a hundred million. All right. I hope so. But you don't think that that's going to happen? Eh, not based on this. I mean, I would have thought Mud would have made more than $21 million. And Mud was a mainstream movie with a wide release and a major actor. Yeah, but it was right before he really popped, or right around that time when uh, Matthew McConaughey, hey, 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 (laughs) I could argue that he's taken a little step back here, though. Like, I can see people having a tepid response to this, like the public. I think Mm -hmm. the public probably has less of a. If if you were a brand new director and this is his first film, would you go, wow, this guy's got some talent? Yeah, I think I'd like to do something. I'd like it better. If I didn't have the expectation for it, that I had based on his previous work. I think I'd probably like it a little bit better. There are things I like about it. I definitely like his actors. And he gets great performances out of his actors. I can't really think of a bad acting performance in any of his films. Well, I mean, what did you... Okay. What did you think of uh, Sarah? Sarah? In this movie. Oh, played by Kirsten Dunst? Yeah. I thought she was fine. I liked it. Okay. I thought... I I wasn't sure for me if it was the character or the actress. Well, see, I'm not a bit Snaggletooth fan. (laughs) Wow. Sorry. She's just never worked for me. I actually like the cartoon. When... (laughs) Quite a bit. When she was Mary Jane in the Spider-Man movies, I didn't think she worked great there. I didn't think she had great (laughs) chemistry with Tobey Maguire. I just... I've never been a big She was good in Fargo, too. Yeah. The TV show. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's been good in that. But the second season. Overall, I'm just not a big Kirsten Dunst fan. In this, I thought she was solid. She did what her character needed to do. She didn't try and steal scenes, and her character wasn't ever supposed to be the star of a scene. Well, wouldn't you say every character is sort of underplayed? Like, everyone's playing at a certain level. Like, none of the major characters are emoting Oh, extensively. Yeah. They're not trying to chew the scenery. You'd like to see like William Shatner in a Jeff Nichols film. <laughs> I, wonder if he could handle, I wonder if Nichols could handle Shatner or if Shatner could handle if Nichols. If Shatner was like the head government guy in charge of the chase after the kid. 
I think the live awesome. the liveliest performance is probably in uh, Kylo Ren. <laughs> there, what's his name? Adam he Driver. Plays, uh, yeah, he plays Seaver or Sevier in the movie. And uh, I mean, he, there's a little bit with him that acts as uh, comic relief in mm-hmm. a sense. But I, I like I I don't know if I've ever seen Adam Driver in a movie that I didn't like him in. With the exception, ooh, I don't know if I really liked him that much in Star Wars. I just, I just countermanded myself, yeah, contradicted yeah, his myself. His most famous role. Yeah, I just contradicted myself. I did that last week too, on the We Laugh you pointed out. Shocker. <laughs> Pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, are we ready to do spoilers? Yeah, because I think in spoilers that that's where I can begin to break it apart. I more. mean, because if you haven't seen this film, you really shouldn't listen to the rest of this podcast. This is a movie to go in knowing as little as possible about it and just let the movie unfold in front of you. Yeah, you, and you I think can, that's fair. Yeah, I think it's fair. And and like I said, if you if you're predisposed to like the kind of movies that we generally like on the Laugh Podcast, then you could go see this movie and come away with a take. You're definitely not gonna. How do I put this? I think you'll be able to appreciate the things that we appreciate about it. Mm-hmm. So. If you're not sure and you can't find this movie, go watch Take Shelter. I think Take Shelter is a better movie. I would say you would agree. Shotgun this, Stories is his best, I think. Okay. I like Shotgun I, I, I think Take Shelter is his best. It was also the first one of his I saw. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I fell in love with it. It was my top-rated film, I think, from 2013, maybe 2014. Which one's this, Take Shelter? Take yeah. Shelter. Yeah. That was my favorite film I'd seen during the whole year. And it was one that stayed with me. So Fair enough. If you watch that and it doesn't work for you, this movie's not going All to right. work either. Yeah, let's 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 break this thing down with some spoilage. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. So the movie we're going to be watching this week is Captain America, and in it, you mentioned that there's not any villain, and, and I think that's one of the things that bothers me about this movie. There's no clear villain in the movie. There's a cult. I don't see him as villains. They're chasing after trying to kidnap a child from his father and mother. Kidnap a child from a kidnapper. Yeah, but as I said in the earlier part of the show, they're not really that present. And then it's not, they're they're not aware of them until they get shot by them. So it's not like there's this menace. There's There's no clear cut conflict. It's all sort of vague ambiguity. Which is fine, I suppose, if you're into that sort of thing. I thought it was a weakness in the movie. Ambigu- some ambiguity I like. The cult that you mentioned, the cult leader, he's not even. you don't even see him after the first 15 minutes. And then that's only a sidebar. You don't need to see him again. He served his purpose in the story. This is minimalist storytelling. Mm. Anything that's not absolutely needed to drive the f- film forward is cut out. Uh, I don't... I understand what you're saying. That doesn't mean that it's a... That makes it a enjoy an enjoyable experience. Okay, uh, you can have minimalist storytelling that still allows for um, clear motivation. Like per se, what is the motivation for the cult to begin with? What do they think that this guy is going to do for them? I would say they hold him up as some sort of prophet because they see these numbers as being references to verses from the Bible. No, they see the numbers as being references to the numbers. They're not in the Bible. Oh, I thought that's where the pastor was getting what verses he was reading to his congregation every week. 
Uh, that those passages were from his sermons. His sermons were it was in biblical language, but they were punctuated by those numbers that are apparently uh, what what do you call them? Uh, minutes and and uh, distances on the mm-hmm. on uh, some sort of so scale. Switch to that, yeah. yeah. So that allows that you to find uh, longitudinal lat- latitudinal mm-hmm. location sort of things. So again, what was Around what was the cult organized, and what was their what was their purpose? Prior a priori, the events of the movie. Well, I mean, they're set up as a cult, so they're all religious fanatics. They clearly believed in something, and I'm generally, a cult something. has some sort of prophet that they hold up there. I know. I mean, I mean, you're saying all these generalities. I'm just saying, what what is it specifically that would motivate that motivates them, and then what is it through the movie? What is their dogma? Why are they even after this kid? What what is it? What is their end goal? Because they think he's a prophet. They want him to come back to help lead them and to help lead them to the truth, enlightenment, whatever you want. No, that's not that's not clear in the movie. Well, I I don't see there being any other reason why the cult would want the kid. Right, and that's that's why I'm saying it's a weakness. Because I mean, the me, guys that go after him, they have to realize that when they get him, they're not going to be able to keep him and bring him back to that compound and have a, a number of sermons after midnight with this kid or you know at nighttime with this kid i mean they're already on the radar the government has infiltrated their compound carried them off violating all sorts of civil liberties which i'm not even going to get into at this point but uh they have to realize that i mean um sam shepherd who plays the 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 cult leader sort of under his breath says you're going to have to get him back or everything else everything is different or everything will change for us okay well i mean he they have to know that everything has changed they're not going to be able to go back to where they were and then what is the result afterwards are they all arrested it's not that they're arrested you can't get this kid with magical superpowers to come back and lead your cult after you've had this experience with the fbi they're on the radar I just don't understand what their goal is and don't going to get the kid back. Because they need him to help lead their cult. I understand, no, that the government's trying to stop them from doing that. Apparently, these cult people are not the most logical of thinkers. Shocker. <laughs> you say lead their cult like it's a thing. Like, yes, lead cults aware. have like, a prophet, right. someone who's telling them of the truth. <laughs> what are they going to lead Generally, them to? Generally, it's whoever's their preacher, minister, whatever you want to call it. I think because the movie isn't sure of that, it lets it go. And that's why you never see Sham- Sam Shepard again, and you only see these two guys as sort of like, again... If uh, the movie came out specifically and said, we, this kid's our prophet, we need to get him back, no matter what, would that have made for a better movie if you had that extra scene? And even if someone said, well, won't the government try and take him back? And the guy goes, that doesn't matter. It doesn't have we to be an extra kid. scene. Because, it, uh, again, there are things, it's not that they're unexplained, it's that they're set up to be very important, and then there's no payoff. Like, uh, at one point, Seaver, there's a big question mark through the film as to where they're headed, where they're headed. At one point, Roy has to, uh, we think he's going to kill this guy that's helped them because he knows where they're headed and he knows where they're headed only because the kid told him in his vision or whatever. So they're all along. Uh, there's this big question mark that looms over the film and Seaver figures it out somehow, which isn't really clear to the audience. 
we never really figured out. And then when they get there, it's like, okay, well, why? I mean, what was so important about this location to anyone other than the kid? And then how does he know? Because, okay, I know what the answer is to the question of why it's important to the kid. How does Severn realize that it makes sense and it comes to light for him that this is where the kid is going? I don't think it matters. I it think... does because the kid. there's a line of dialogue where Seaver says, oh, that's where he's headed. Uh, it makes sense. He, he says something like that. I don't know his exact quote, mm-hmm. but he makes it seem like, oh, now I understand he's headed towards the Eiffel Tower or hmm, it makes sense. He's going towards this particular location and it just comes out to be a vague place that we never really... I mean, it's the Everglades. The reason why I say it doesn't matter is because we get enough to know that this mystery, this riddle has been solved. Does the solution to the riddle make for a better story? I think Jeff Nichols, the director, would argue it doesn't. Sometimes you can take the camera away from these little moments in the film because they don't really matter. It doesn't matter what the cult's motivation is. They're coming after the kid. That's the important part of the story. It doesn't matter how the government has figured out where the family is headed. They know, and they have figured it out. I think that's the whole idea. You see the same thing in the movie The Prestige, the magician movie. It's a whole movie about magicians performing magic and trying to be the better magician. Most time, though, when they're doing a stage trick, the camera pans away to some other spot. You're seeing the reaction from the audience, or you're seeing backstage. You don't really see the tricks being performed that clearly. Because it's not really that important. I would argue that the movie, this movie, sets up those things as being important and it just doesn't pay off. It doesn't, it it makes a point to suggest that these things are important and then in the end there's really nothing important about them. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's what Nichols is saying, that there really is nothing that's very important, but that doesn't make for very compelling movies. Oftentimes in films, we, especially in science fiction films, we go, wow, these explanations are stupid. Uh, That's one of the things that made The Martian so great was it explained all of the science and it seemed plausible. And that was such a revelation to most people, including myself. I mean, I love the book. I love the movie was because, wow, everything is explained and everything seems to make sense. I mean, there are a couple little plot holes in that story, but overall, it's so much better than, and I know you're going to roll your eyes, a movie like Pacific Rim that just has ridiculous plot holes. When the EMP burst goes off and the other robot can still work because it's analog. I know, but what are you arguing, man, as compared to this movie? Instead of trying to come up with an explanation... It's but, not really important. Let's just continue on with the plot. But you did, you you said that, if I'm following you, which I might not be, but you, you said that Martian is a better movie because it fills in those potholes, whereas this and movie doesn't. Yeah, but most movies fall into that middle ground of trying to come up with some bad explanation for the science, whatever's going on, the mystery. So either... Be completely 100% science, do tons of years of research like Andy Weir did for The Martian, or just kind of skip over that. Instead of showing us the chalkboard that uh, Adam Driver's drawing on to figure out the mystery, just show us Adam Driver's face. And no, let they him showed say, us the chalkboard. That's my yeah, point. They made it a big point. working on it. He's staring at it. He stares at it and he circles two numbers and he goes, oh, that's where they're going. Yeah, and but it doesn't we don't find that we don't know which numbers he circled. We don't yeah, understand. I think one of them was thirty. 
but we don't understand the connection between it. We cut to his face and him talking right. to the other guy. But at that point in the movie, when he goes, ooh, that's where they're headed, that is a big tease. It's a big setup. And it's like, ah, this is going to be revealed to the audience at some point. This is where they're headed, and it will make sense. It's just unsatisfying that it's not. I'm not saying that things need to be spoon-fed. I'm fine with them not being spoon-fed. If it was explained to you, do you think you could have a satisfying answer? If there had been a reason for that that was explainable to the character in the movie, Seaver, if it made sense to Seaver in the movie why he was going there and that part was explained because they play, they sort of tease that, then I'd be fine with it. If it was, this is the location of where the, uh, what was it, ExxonMobil mm-hmm. had their leakage? Mm-hmm. Is that what it was, Exxon? Yeah, you're talking the pipeline that burst underwater. The pipeline burst. Yeah, yeah. If, it, if it became, this is the pipeline, this is the place where we had the pipeline burst, and this is why he's headed there, I would roll my eyes and think, that's kind of ridiculous, whatever, what environmental point are they trying to make here? But then it would make sense, because it made sense to that character, and that's why he would even have that thought or even have that statement. The fact that he makes that point, he makes a point of it in the movie, and it and it's such a driving question for the movie... And it never really gets fully answered to their satisfaction. Like, okay, he knows the longitude and the latitude and where it's headed or where they're headed, but that place is meaningless to them, to the characters, other than the kid. And I, I don't know; it was just unsatisfying for me. So that was one of the that was yeah. one of the things that I had See, problems I, with. Yeah, I just I, I didn't care. <laughs> okay, I mean, right, it's he, like, to me, he had to go somewhere to meet up with the aliens. It doesn't really matter where he goes to meet them, to me. I guess for me, and I'm not a, you know I'm not like an action movie freak. Obviously, I don't really like superhero movies. I don't like stuff that's just, like I tried to watch Furious 7 Mm -hmm. this weekend. Yeah, it it just doesn't do it for me. This movie has a sequence right after the titles that's a little bit like Sicario. And it's the FBI infiltrating this this cult. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of setup for it. And there's a lot of tension and it reminded me and, and I was a little bit confused because it was juxtaposed pr- prior to the titles to this chase, you know, where the care mm-hmm. this uh, escape. It's not really clear exactly what's going on and it's setting up the, there's this tension, this building, this building. And then uh, it ends in an interrogation scene, a bunch of people getting in a bus and going to some high school somewhere. I mean, that's pretty much how it ends. I mean, there's weapons and stuff, and there's some night vision goggles, and there's a whole ton of soldiers, and then they come and pull these uh, women in prairie dresses and uh, overweight, uh, slightly balding men and some small amount of children into a bus. Oh, see, I was relieved by that. Just so All often right, there you go. in these uh, type, when cults get raided, it ends very poorly. Fair enough. But that's, I mean, that's Red, what Red this State, movie another is. movie I love. Things go I don't think I saw Red State, right? but I mean that's what this movie is, and that's why it's like I said, it's just sort of unsatisfying. I'm not saying you need to go all full warfare, you know, like scorch the earth kind of thing, but I think there could have been something a little bit more yeah. developed than what well, they got. I'm getting the, I, I, I'm starting to understand why you don't like Hemingway as a writer and his stories, because to me his stories are much the same way. What is the bare minimum of details we need to tell the story? Not to fully tell the story, but just to tell the story. 
like I said, I don't mind. I don't. It depends on the the story, I guess. Right. And I, I don't mind some ambiguity. I don't mind some gaps. I, I just well, would talk about ambiguity. Like, what did you think of the ending then? I, I didn't I mean, like we're the ending starting at all. to get into a rat hole. But the ending with Michael Shannon, he's standing there looking out. Oh, the brief. And ever so slightly, right. his eyes glows, glow a little bit like his son's. It's kind of like. I don't want to ruin an ending of another film. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like some other ending of a movie where it's, oh, okay, well, we already talked about, well, we can't just be a movie that we talked about, can it? Uh, might or might not be directed by Christopher Nolan. I don't, I, there's not enough there there with that shot. There's not enough there with that to redeem the other letdowns that I've had. But that then. shot, and I mean, that's ambiguity, right? Because you yeah. can't do any more. Because right now you're like, oh, well, maybe right. that was just the sun shining in his eyes. Caught him in a certain way. Or maybe there's something there. There is some ambiguity there. Right. I I don't mind it. I, I mean, I think that it's, that elevates it over where, if it had ended before that, um, yeah. It and to me, it also as... helps clear up some of the other stuff. Like, if this kid's, right. he belongs to he... a people who live in another world that's somehow touching ours. Yeah. Well, and if he's the spawn of two Riddler humans, how did he get So the suggestion powers, there so. with this last shot is that Roy was from this place. Maybe that he didn't know that he was from this place where mm. he had, he was touched with, uh, by the Holy ghost or whatever mm-hmm. in, in this realm. So what? So what? Oh, I like, I mean, to me, it brings up a lot of philosophical questions. Like, what is the role of parents? I think is a big question this movie's asking us. Well, that's the, the, the idea of parents is, I mean, to me, you, j- most parents are trying to raise their children in a way so that their children can be more successful than they were. So if he has a little bit of glowing eye syndrome, his son has full blown glowing eye syndrome. <laughs> so he can be more successful. And I mean, it's even the idea of he's lost his son, he regains his son so that he can give his son away again. And part of parenting is if you do a good job with it, you're putting yourself out of work. Yeah. If he's a good parent to his son in this movie, Michael Shannon, that is, he's going to lose his son. <laughs> I, I I think those ideas are really interesting, and I think they're told in an interesting way. And to me, the whole story works as allegory. <laughs> <laughs> I think the story is allegory. I don't know if it works as allegory. I mean, they go and hide in a cave. And the boy then says to his father, we need to leave the cave. And his father doesn't want to leave the cave. They leave the cave. They don't want to cross the threshold. Yeah. They don't want to cross the threshold. He doesn't want to go out. And the kid has all this light pour out of him. There's some sort of weird flash. It's just something the kid going or the on. mother that he's with. No, he's with his dad. Oh, is, and, this is. And the son then when he, yeah, has all the knowledge. Yeah, but the kid doesn't want to leave. The father doesn't want to leave the cave because he doesn't want to expose his kid to the sunlight. It's not because he's yeah. scared. Well, he's, he's, scared he's scared for, for his son. son. Yeah, he doesn't want to go out in the sun. He wants to stay in the cave where right. there are the shadows. That's all an allegory for Plato's cave of knowledge. A huge <laughs> thing in philosophy. It is. It uh, instantly reads that way. Right. And the kids say, no, we need to go out and see what really is there. I need to fully experience this. All right, but and then once we... he does, he has the knowledge. He knows what his mission in life is. He's not sh- The fact know, that I couldn't like... From it pick out where the movie was going to head. Like, like the fact that it wasn't telegraphed is fine. I, I, I kind of enjoy that about movies. <laughs> movies are uh, original and interesting. But the gap that happens after this explosion, the logical gaps that happen, and then the, the plot and gap, the, the plot gap that happens where there's this explosion and then suddenly they appear, 
at the uh, uh, hotel where they were headed to originally is uh, to me a little vexing. See, I, I, I don't. I understand that they skip ahead, but the movie is also very careful to tell us that Kirsten Dunst and Joel Edgerton in the hotel uh, look at the alarm clock and it's reading something like three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And Michael Shannon and his son went out as the sun was coming up in the morning. So this has been many hours later. And later on, the film shows us that the kid can now walk up to cars and they unlock and work for him, right? But it pays off much better when he does that with Adam Driver later in the film that gag works a lot better if he had already done that with michael shannon you know and found them a car so that they can go the net scene loses a lot more of its momentum i think i mean it, movie... i don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to assume that michael shannon can find a car and drive them to a hotel I, because I... they've already done similar things throughout the film well they haven't already done similar things they do it afterwards but shannon's able to acquire cars i mean he's willing to do whatever he needs for his son by the simply because the there's that sort of logical gap in in terms of time whatever i i understand that something else happens and it goes back and fixes it or or it could and you and if you're reading the film you should be looking for those kinds of details i get that but i don't think it does enough to take you to to allow it does i don't think i don't give the movie enough credit on that point because i'm so f- bumped by that event that it doesn't earn it, the dis, the suspension of disbelief or the reconstruction that i have to do to go back to that point and uh allow for that event to happen because it's not the fact that they got to the hotel in seven or eight hours that annoys me as much as it is the fact that there's this giant explosion somewhere and nobody really makes a mention of it again. You know, it's not even sort of referenced. It's not even a thing. Well, the kid says he understands now. It's been made clear to no, him. No, I'm talking about people other than the kid. I'm talking about... That the, Shannon doesn't say something about it? Or... My kid exploded But it's light. not in the news with Nancy Grace again. <laughs> you know. What happened out There was the a woods? giant explosion somewhere in the woods. It didn't happen out in the woods. Didn't they do a big... It's not just that it happened out in the woods. It may have happened out in the woods. But wasn't there like a big overhead shot that sort of uh, foreshadows the event at the end? I mean, isn't that sort of like what they were doing with that? Showing that there's this sort of like... Sure, I I could see an argument on there. I also think they're just picking that camera shot to show you the scope of the blast. I know, and then no one mentions that there's a blast afterwards. It's like when a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it. Does it make any noise? Yes, yes it does. (laughs) And and there was people around to hear it. The audience. Me. I don't know. I just, the trails off, there's sun satisfying in that sense. I would agree with your, with your idea that you brought up earlier. The movie starts off with a lot of energy and uh, some amazing pacing. I don't know if it can keep up for the entire runtime of the film with that. It asks a lot of questions. It doesn't provide a whole lot of answers. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes answers can be satisfying. Joel, Joel Edgerton's character it's not really fully explained to me, although he's a highlight of the movie. Seaver's character, um, I mean, this is nitpick. This is this is too nitpicky maybe even to mention, but it bothered me that he thought that handcuffing himself at the end would have been a plausible excuse for him to have driven the boy away from the camp to the parents. I mean... That didn't make any sense to me. And it didn't make any sense to me that he would have 
handcuffed himself right then and there instead of waiting for, I don't know, to hear the helicopters. <laughs> Maybe if he hears the helicopters, then he handcuffs himself. Because it's uncomfortable to be in handcuffs for that long. It took him quite a while to get... I'll defer to the knowledgeable one <laughs> in our group. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but they also don't show how they escape from the government facility. I mean, we know the kid can use electronics and stuff, and apparently opened up three doors, but there were no security they'll, guards around. They'll piece it together. I mean, but we're not shown that, so... And then Seaver shows up at the end as a sort of a deus ex machina for Edgerton's character. Why? Why would they put him in there? What What motivation does the does Doesn't it give you hope that Joel Edgerton will be let go? That he won't be yeah, just... but what motivation does the government have? It's not the government. It's just Adam Driver. He's seen the light. He snuck in there and got a he, special pass. He, like, used a No, I think the government brought him back. They believed his story, whatever it his was. His story, which was... Was plausible. And, I, I okay, was overpowered by the kid. Okay, now you need to go debrief kid. him? You're safe now. You're not around the kid. So go debrief him. Guess so. Well, for what? To what ends? For what purpose? Uh, unsatisfying. Yeah, it works for me. I would like to hear <laughs> from good. the listeners, though, who watch this movie and see who yeah, they sure. agree with. That would be interesting. I'd like to know. That's the best part of the movie is talking about the movie. I agree. For me. So, well, all right, then. Uh, That's a show. Mr. Bull. <laughs> that is a show. Uh, next week, reviewing Captain America Civil War. I know you can't wait. Have Have we ever reviewed a superhero movie on the show? Or we did Deadpool. We did. we did Deadpool. Yeah, and we did Avengers and, uh, well, you did Avengers and I did uh, Bone Slow Tomahawk. West that week. Oh, uh, I think we talked about Ant-Man. So, yeah, we have done a couple Marvel right, films. We've done a couple. I maybe. think it's interesting. I used to not go to theaters to watch the Marvel films. Now, I'm going. I'm enjoying it. You're like most of America. You're going to be pulled into this thing. How much does it do on opening day? Opening day? Or opening weekend. Opening weekend. How much are you expecting for it to do on opening weekend? 210. Really? Sure. That's not a record. It's it's still solid. $210 million. I'm going over. All right. All the better for me since I've picked it as my, uh, one of my seven films for the box office Unless challenge. the listeners listen to me and don't go on opening weekend. Then it'll make 210 Ooh. minus a couple hundred bucks. Do you get Thursday's box? I guess that's worked in, isn't well, it? If you're asking me, I'll say yes. No, Do does anyone? Do, do we get Thursday's box? I guess we'd have to. I mean, unless you can... Yeah, I don't know if we can parse it out. But I mean a lot of these almost all these movies will that we've picked will have a Thursday gross, Thursday night. Conjuring part two. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I think we, we should throw it in there. Just... All right, sure. Whatever benefits you, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Google. Alright, so in the movie Mud, uh Matthew. Yeah, but McConaughey? I was thinking about the other guy. Michael Shannon. <laughs> So in the movie Mud, uh, Michael Shannon plays Galen as a sort of a, a parent figure, although he's only the uncle. And he asks the character, Neckbone, you know, you can tell me things if you want to, if you need to. Even though I'm not your father, I'm, a, I'm your uncle. You can tell me stuff if you need to. Neckbone says, I can tell you that this helmet smells like duck butter. <laughs> and that, my friends, is why Mud is a much better movie. <laughs> The Midnight Special. It's not much better. They're both great films. Go watch them both and write into the show about what you thought of them. All right. So for Mr. Uh, Bull over there. Pleasure as always. I'm the L-Train. Poxet, Boonham, everybody. There be dragons. Are you going to the movies this weekend? 
let Laugh know what you saw. Send in your review by emailing the show at thelaughpodcast at gmail.com, tweeting at the Laugh Podcast, or messaging us on facebook.com backslash the Laugh Podcast. The best comments will get read on a future show. the new theme music for what the new oh. theme music it's time for spoilers <coughs> <laughs> wow sorry about blow that out all the speakers <laughs> it's not gonna be it. oh um so the movie that we're gonna be watching this upcoming week is captain marvel america captain america i wrote down captain marvel 